see, we're on a mission from God. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today I am going to interview someone who has been in my orbit for a while, or or maybe I've been in her orbit. We've been orbiting each other. And uh, we we have a lot, I think, in common, just in our outlook and, and the things that we're trying to accomplish in the world. And so I'm very pleased to have her here because I think it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Welcome to Christine Glenn. Hello. I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me. Just so that everyone knows, this has been several weeks in the making. We had to reschedule multiple times and there were all kinds of wires crossed. And so I feel like we've just being here together right now, we have accomplished something. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, for sure. It has been a mesmeric ride for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. So we're going to kick off the conversation with some icebreakers, and then we're going to dive into all of the cool stuff that you're doing. So my very first question is, what was the last thing that you watched on television? My husband and I actually watched the film that I cannot remember the name of last night with Denzel Washington and Jared Leto. And we didn't get through the whole thing. So um, I think it's called The Little Things is the, is the new film that is on HBO Max, but that's that's what I got to report. Um, unfortunately, we didn't make it through the whole film. So I don't know or, what to say about that. I mean, do we, can you divulge why that is? Or should is this like grown-up time? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Did the um, chill take over the Netflix? <laughs> no. No, we honestly, it's, um, it's a phenomenon that's been occurring with us for a little bit. And which is a little bit interesting because I used to be this, I used to push back a lot around entertainment for entertainment's sake and was pretty devoted to art house films and documentaries and things that were pretty, sometimes very tough to watch. And that was my mainstay for during pre-COVID for about three decades. And then COVID happened and all of a sudden things that touch on that place where it brushes up against my reality or the reality of the world too much. If, if it's got a lot of inherent darkness, if we're looking directly at the shadow qualities of individuals and that's the motivating kind of theme of the film, both of us tend to get turned off pretty quick. Hmm. And so it's a little bit interesting, but so we were about, we were about an hour and 15 minutes into the film and we're like, yeah, I might want to sleep this evening. So we're going to, we're going to turn this off. Yeah. I totally believe that entertainment should be for entertainment's sake. My husband is like you and that he, he like watches a lot of serious stuff. And I'm like, man, reality all is already way too heavy for me. No, I'm, I'm with you now for sure. (laughs) Give me a Ted Lasso any day of the week. (laughs) I am down with it. Nice. So I'm just honoring that, but that's really what happened. And that was just last night. So Okay, well, that's good to know. And I'm, I'm actually happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear, like, I, I actually, uh, the podcast I just recorded before yours was with Kathy Benavides. Do you know Kathy? I don't, no. Okay. She's super cool. And we had this long conversation about the, what is acceptable art and fashion, right? And how do you open that up to make sure that it's universally accessible to everyone and yeah. still make it good? 
Yeah. Very good topic of discussion. So we can actually come back to that (laughs) because I do want to, I want to hear your thoughts on this because especially because you are a person that is so discriminating as far as the things that you consume and the things that you are entertained by. I feel like there's this line. I think, I don't know what it is, but there's a line between um, just mass produced shit. And then also like just making sure that, that it's accessible to everyone and that it has kind of, that it's not, not exclusionary. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I hear you. I'm with you. Okay. All right. So um, second question, because we have to we have to finish my icebreakers. It's the law <laughs> is what is the last book that you read? This is an easy one. Um, my husband gave me the complete anthology of Mary Oliver's work mm. and oh I have God. been deliciously devouring it over and over and over again, because, you know, back to, you know, what we intentionally consume, I think she's an Oracle and I just find her to be like the immediate plug to the greater truth. She's very much like Rumi for me. So, you know, I think of her as sort of a a sacred being that's kind of trying to share something very essential about being human. So I am, I read her work every morning and sometimes every evening, but that's what I'm kind of plowing through is her whole canon of work. And it's, it's a really unbelievable thing. Yeah. She's brilliant. And I have come to her very late in life. Like I only recently knew who she was, you know, in the last couple of years, thanks to, to Maria Popova, like I live and die by brain picker. And uh, <laughs> she, she went through a little Mary Oliver phase there for a while and I got hooked into it. And it is, you're right. I think she, the thing that sets her apart is that it's not just technically good writing. It's got, as you said, this essential human themes or theme to it I I don't I don't even know how to how to put it into words but it's the kind of thing that you read it and you feel yourself sort of vibrating to it like you know that that these are truths yeah like she's speaking to every being in a human sack if you're walking around in a human sack there will be an opportunity for you to plug into this work back to that more egalitarian piece that you were talking about earlier you know I hate that poetry has been kind of been placed on the shelf mm-hmm. as kind of a rarefied art form that only intellectuals or snobs or true eccentrics that can't. I'm speaking about myself, by the way, the snob, the eccentric, and the person that can't, that is completely antisocial. That, but, you know, that being said, I believe that her work is so transcendent of any of that, that it would be terrible if people weren't introduced to it just any old human because it it really does have that quality of just reminding you of the fallibility of our humanness over and over again yeah in the most beautiful way that's the yep. thing that i love is is when people take art and they tear down ego with it but instead of leaving you decimated it actually reveals your true self Yeah. And that's art. Like that's what art is for. I so agree. It's like, it leaves you feeling so beautifully fragile and awake. You know, you don't feel like, Oh God, I just, you know, now I feel like I'm in the ditch and I've got to go do something to drag myself out for the day. So anyway, that's what I'm completely obsessed with at the moment. Nice. Okay. I should buy that actually that anthology because I have a couple of books, but I should read the whole thing. Mental note. Um, And then the last question is, what did you have for breakfast today? 
Oh, good question. So I awoke to the most terrible thing that could happen for me in the morning time is that I was, I'm out, I was out of coffee. Oh. I, have a very, I know I have a very full day and all we had was decaf. So I literally had to drive my country ass to the Starbucks <laughs> to get some caffeine. So, but I also got those little, you know, sous vide bites that they have, oh, yeah. which like egg, egg bites. So that was my journey before this. And I had two calls before you with, you know, happily munching and sipping my coffee, but yeah, it would have been a, we would have had, we would be having a very different conversation if <laughs> prevention of Starbucks didn't happen. And I look, I know some people are like, why are you doing this? But Hey, you got to own where you are. Word, word. Yeah. Um, one, you got to get you some actual additional coffee supplies. I don't know what needs to happen for that, you know, to occur. I don't care if you need to have a drone drop it off, whatever. Right. Like, this my husband was like, how did this happen? First of all, this is like a serious failure in our home. <laughs> how we missed it, I don't know, but it, it happened. So okay, so anyway. I'll tell you, we we avert this situation and because we're the same way. Nothing happens before coffee. We use the coffee timer so that it is prepared and ready as soon as we get our asses out of bed. Yes, ma'am. Correct. But I, so that because of that, I prep my coffee at night beforehand mm -hmm. so that yeah. if God forbid we're out of coffee and it has happened, we're like, oh, <laughs> fuck, I got to get to the store like now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That was a fail. I mean, again, it was a fail of a pretty monumental proportion <laughs> for me to be like in my pajamas at, you know, driving down the country road. <laughs> yeah. I also just want to say that, like, I'm not a huge fan of Starbucks coffee, but I drink it regularly just because it's convenient and it's there. And before COVID, it was part of my, you know, drive to work. I would just stop there and, you know, it was part of my morning ritual. And I have to say that those egg bites are actually, like the Florentine one is actually pretty satisfying, like shockingly satisfying. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have a lot of time, so it was a little bit of a, like, everything was a a gap filler, but it worked. I'm yeah. happy with it. Yeah. I try not to eat too many carbs or pastries in the morning and that's kind of what people get at coffee shops. So I'm always pleased when there's an offering. That's not that. It's so true. That's the last thing I need it on top of my, my caffeine boost is like a sugar high. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay. So. All right. Uh, well done on the icebreakers. Very nice. Okay. So let's, um, let's start now talking about whatever the fuck we want to talk about. I want to start just by introducing, like, I would like you to tell my listeners what it is that you do. I am the queen of the slash careers. So I have for many years have had a specialized consultancy wherein I work primarily with people doing social sector innovations globally. So I work with folks that have mostly international initiatives, but not exclusively. And I help them, I, as an organizational designer, I help them build their, the vision and the kind of operational prowess to succeed for their life's work. And I get the opportunity to work with truly amazing beings doing that. However, you know, as a person who used to travel pretty extensively annually. So the year before COVID, I probably traveled to India specific four or five times. So that's almost every other month. So I would say, yeah, definitely over the, the year and a half prior to COVID, I was in India probably five times. And so that obviously came to a complete screeching halt. So it changed the nature of my work pretty dramatically right out of the gate. So right up, you know, kind of 
March, February of last year, all of my international travel was tabled. And it really allowed me to get back to some of the essential kind of components of the coaching practice that I have, which is more working with leaders. So in addition to this organizational design stuff, I've always done what would be traditional executive and life coaching modalities with those leaders to help them be more effective leaders when we do build their company or their initiative or their organization. We want them to be able to lead it effectively, manage teams, and create a sense of wholeness and wellness for themselves. So I've always done that work, but it has definitely been probably a third of my practice, whereas the OD stuff was more, the organizational design stuff. But that has come roaring back. So during COVID, working with individual leaders has been my primary work, and it has been the most... I don't even know what to say about how humbling and beautiful and kind of transcendent it's been because people have been so uniquely challenged and to stand alongside these people who are tackling really serious things. I work with a a gal who is the CEO of a very large reproductive health network of centers and those kinds of things. So during that, during the time of COVID, it's just been humbling and beautiful to watch them navigate this environment, to be part of it the tiniest bit of just an ear or a shoulder or a backbone if they needed it when things got rough. And believe me, they did early on. There were so many tears on the calls that was really, so this beautiful vulnerability showed up during this time that was so magical to experience and to be a part of. So that's been what I've been doing through COVID for my work practice primarily. In addition to that, I am a writer. And I write extensively and have been focusing, I was working on a novel and then pivoted to more shorter form work, applying for MFA programs as we speak. And so doing a lot of spoken word and storytelling work and obsessed with story. And so that's kind of been the third component, the spoke of my wheel. And I do workshops in the business and and social sector environments around individual story narrative and and identifying the limiting beliefs associated with the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell each other and how that's really affecting ourselves and our work. So that's the complex, not bite-sized explanation for the work that I do, but that's as, as, as kind of clear as I can get with it. Yeah. I think elevator pitches are bullshit. It, it doesn't exist for me. Yeah. Okay. So uh, what are some of the themes in your work over the last year with not just COVID, just everything, like the whole world has been, or it's felt destabilized. So as you're working with leaders and organizations, what are some of the refrains that you're noticing as far as mm. where people are challenged and, um, and what they're looking for as far as problem solving? That's a really good question. So the first thing I'm going to say is I work primarily with women. I do have male clients, but this year tended to be really centered on my on the female executives and founders that I work with. And I would say that their challenges with what I would consider to be traditional gender roles came to a real head. Mm-hmm. They were able to compartmentalize their work life in a way pre-COVID that they could no longer do if they had small children, especially those that were homeschooling or any, any child that was at home and having to be in their space and be educated as, you know, as well as these individuals trying to run a business or an initiative or do whatever it is they were trying to achieve. So the confluence of what are inherent conflicts 
with these gender roles came up over and over and over again, and usually began with these very deep questions about why in the hell have I done this to myself? I love my family. I love my children. I used to love my job. Now I find that I can't do any of them effectively and I'm hating them all. So it kind of was this really deep process of unlearning and unraveling the narrative around themselves as it relates to their gender and what they were supposed to be doing in life and how they were supposed to be doing it across the board. Most of them felt that they were failing miserably. Yeah. Yeah. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm at a point now where I, I think the reason I survived the last year without getting a divorce and losing my mind is because my kids are 18 now. And so I don't feel like I have to be as present for every single thing they're doing like they're pretty self-motivated in school and you know they they take care of a lot of their shit they can make their own food whatever but even then even still I find myself chafing against these kinds of expectations gender expectations that I hadn't I mean I guess I had always kind of known theoretically that this is how shit was broken down in society but it just is so very clear now how unfair <laughs> and I don't like to use that word because I, I am Gen X and life's not fair. I know that, but really it is just bullshit how women are supposed to be able to do multiple things and do it pleasantly, right? And competently and still, and which fine, fuck it. I can do it, but then you still don't want to give me have the control and I don't just and I'm not like talking shit about my husband I'm talking about society at this point (laughs) yeah like he'll at least listen to me the rest of society will not and I'm looking at other women who have like young children and who are in much more prominent leadership positions and they're just sort of like what the fuck is this like this is bullshit and I just recently read a piece that made me think about how much of our current idea of modern feminism is based on the fantasy that there are always going to be other people around that we can you know I guess what it is is if you want to be a modern woman who's got all her shit together you have to have an entire workforce of mostly other women (laughs) who are doing a lot of this kind of labor that you can't do yourself what does that mean for all of us that is a, a really essential assessment. I, I actually have a client who is a very successful exe- executive woman and she calls the women that work with her. She ha- also has three children. She has a nanny. She has a somebody who manages her household. I, I, what I would consider to be sort of a, an assistant type person, but, a, but on the personal side, she, she calls them herself included, the sister wives. Mm. That she considers all of these women, to your point, the ways in which she can function in her home but there's only one of her husband right that's interesting yes and what does that mean in the broader context right for society as far as you look at america i'll just pick on america because i'm american but you look at pretty much any society and and you extrapolate the dynamics of the home out into the the real world and you realize how long we've been lying to ourselves about how much progress we've made because we really haven't if it can fall apart that easily where we're back (laughs) you know barefoot in the kitchen yeah that's exactly the 
that piece in and of itself is the primary theme, at least with the women that I have been hearing from very early on, especially once the schools closed. Oh man, whoo, all hell broke loose initially. And then there was a stabilizing influence and then it got crazier again. But you're absolutely right. If all of these quote unquote advances can be erased sort of across the board, right? And we're not just seeing this is a global kind of setback. Then what real progress is it just that women are so skilled at moving the shell game around the table that we've dazzled everybody, including ourselves, into thinking that we've made real progress? Yeah. This is, I'm not saying that we haven't, but I'm asking the question to your point. But yeah, it's a real, it's a doozy. That's definitely the primary theme from the women that I've worked with is helping them understand and define for themselves a new story. And the thing is, I feel like in the conversation around gender roles and gender equity, we all kind of dismiss the most fundamental and basic shit that is actually not fundamental and basic, like food, like eating. Like it is a goddamn job every goddamn day to come up with food for a family. And like that, that has to be an essential part of the conversation. Your family has to eat. All of our families have to eat. And somebody's got to be in charge of cooking that food or Mm buying, procuring that food. And not everybody can afford to eat out all the time or hire a chef. Or, you know, get Uber Eats or whatever it is, you know? Yeah. No, I listen, I hear you. That's the stuff that I think is, is, you know, slow inching people closer to the precipice. It, I'm not joking. It's like the laundry and the grocery shopping are like putting people on the, you know. Yeah. I am here for, for that. I'm here for the, I'm here for that revolution. I think I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, we got to do something cause it's not, this is not sustainable. And frankly, I'm over it. The other thing that I just, I want to get your perspective on Something I've been thinking a lot about as far as women's power, like what does mm. it look like to be a powerful woman? And mm. I, while I was, I had COVID <laughs> for a couple of weeks and mm-hmm. uh, laid in bed, pretty much unable to do anything and just started watching reruns of RuPaul's Drag Race, right? That just got me spinning. That got me thinking about all kinds of things about gender and what does it mean? You know, what does gender mean and why do we define things a certain way? And what does it mean to be a woman with power? And, uh, you know, and the reason why that is, is a lot of those, a lot of the men who are drag queens, they're not unhappy being men. They like being men, but mm-hmm. being, being able to present as a woman and a very specific kind of woman, right? Like drag queens are not <laughs> Pollyanna. They are like extreme, they have an extreme amount of personal and sexual agency. And so that fulfills a certain need for them. And so I started thinking about where am I deriving my power and what does it look like mm-hmm. if I were to create a identity for myself or a alter ego for myself that filled those needs to be able to have power as a woman, what would that look like? So much of how we define womanhood and women's roles and identity is simply a juxtaposition to male hegemony. Mm -hmm. Why is something feminine? Because it's the opposite of what men are doing. Yeah, very true. So what, I mean, I'm curious to know if you've thought about this and what does it look like to be a powerful woman outside of male hegemony. Oh my goodness. Woo! Girl, you just opened that box. Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying a couple of things. First of all, I'm a 52-year-old woman with an almost entirely shaved head. Uh-huh. I resurrected a film and print media 
for what, you know, for all intents and purposes, a modeling career during COVID. So I, in other words, I stand in front of cameras and people take pictures of me. It's one of the things that I do as part of my creative self-expression. It's part of my writing work. It's part of my spoken word work. It's part of my speaking engagements. And so this, and nobody would look at me and say, she looks like the, in my mind's eye, what I think of as traditionally feminine. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you ask my husband, he would say, you know, she's a beautifully gorgeous embodied feminine spirit and all of those things. So I think a lot about this and I think a lot about women in leadership because I work with a lot of women leaders, but in terms of power, which is the word, the specific, the word that you used, I think that we have spent so much time subverting, numbing, swallowing, remaining that the conversation about what true feminine power looks like in the 21st century, I think is completely brand new. I think it is the conversation to have it's probably going to look a lot more like power sharing as opposed to power above. But I think it is the conversation. And when I think about the women that I think of as powerful, I work with a lot of indigenous women, many decades, I've been working in indigenous communities. And if you want to talk about the epitome of a powerful woman, go to villages, tribes, or cultures that center around the matriarch, that is a powerful woman. And that power isn't centered in appearance. It's, it's centered in being present and the specific type of care that is dispatched. But there aren't many pleasantries. There isn't this niceness. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that is a powerful woman. So when I think, when I personally, based on my own experience and background and the work that I've done, think about power, the most powerful women I know, I, I mean, just... Uh, there's a woman, by the way, in this village in Western Rajasthan, India, from the work that I do, this phenomenal organization called Women Serve. And her name just happens to be Kali. In about the Hindu tradition, Kali has a very specific quality. And she is one of the only landowners in this traditional community in Western Rajasthan. And she wields and hefts her power in a kind of bombastic and unfurled way that is so inspiring. And I remember being at a small meeting in a, in a rural community in Western Rajasthan, and she was really engaging the male leadership, the male farmers in the community around a, a very specific thing that she thought was important for the women and girls in her community. And that's power to me. That's power. But it doesn't look like any of the Western constructs of power that we've concocted for women in particular. Right. I've done, you know, searches on Google and Pinterest for images because I actually I'm making a series of just digital um, collages around this theme. And almost inevitably, like if you type in goddess or queen, they are highly sexualized images that are sexualized under the male gaze, right? Like they, they look completely either, you know, like nubile yep, <laughs> yep. models totally. or whatever. Like, I'm so intrigued by this. I think it's such a, I, I think you are 100 fucking percent, right? This is the conversation to be having right now because we're oh, not yeah. going anywhere. I'm telling you right now, if COVID has not made it abundantly clear, we're not going anywhere until we can sort this gender shit out because- half the population need, you know, we're just like done with it. We're done with it. Yeah. No, I, I mean, we have this beautiful moment in time, which is, it's never happened in my lifetime. And if I think if I asked my mother who obviously is much older than I am, she's in her eighties. 
I think she would say it's the first time in her lifetime where the conversation is brand new. We are, as we speak, redefining and creating new story. And I keep using this particular language because it's true. We we slotted into a story that we thought was true. We shared that story with others that became an ecosystem, that became a culture, that became the narrative. And that has crumbled. We are (laughs) trying to wade through the muck of that story that has disintegrated. So there's a new story emerging. And what will it be? What do we want it to be? What is real? What feels like an authentic narrative that is inclusive of the broader feminine experience. And that truly represents, to your point, power. What does that mean? I think the group that has given this the most thought at this point, or who is actually leading the most interesting conversations around this are Black women. I think Mm -hmm. they fell to the bottom of the societal pecking order in this country for so long. And they've they've had time to stew on it. And Mm -hmm. what you said earlier about how, you know, women's power doesn't always look nice or friendly or accommodating. And I think that, you know, I, I hear this refrain a lot from the Black women that I follow, which is that they are not here to placate people. And that white womanhood or, or white women's power is so entrenched in the patriarchal norms about what it looks like to please and to cajole and to simply, you know, not simply just be respected for who you are, but for what you can do for other people or make them feel. And I really find that, uh, you know, in, initially, I what like you do feel as a white woman, you do feel sort of like, a, you know, attacked. And what's so fascinating is that you f- you would feel attacked just by someone being their authentic selves. <laughs> and, and this trope around you know, the ang- angry black woman and all of that, when you start to really pick it apart and analyze what, wh- what these women are saying and how they're saying it, they're not angry. They're just not trying to make you feel okay. <laughs> and that's amazing. It's so, it's absolutely true. I mean, white women as a, as a white woman, you know, the only power that we've snatched legitimately is through proximity to power, not actual. Right. So in order to have proximal power, we have learned how to play in that space, which means placation, which means um, subverting and consuming, numbing. There's a, I mean, we have to get to a place where we talk about intoxicants and things like that as well, because that too has been a major theme. Mm. Folks have been off the rails in terms of trying to numb themselves through this experience. And it's now, of course, backfiring. But that's part of that placation. And the, you know, we have to be at half mast in order to slot in and remain in in proximity to that power. Because otherwise, if we don't, then we're going to get kicked out of the sphere. And then where will we be? Right. We don't take it. I mean, Lord knows white women don't take care of, you know, each other. That is not something that I would consider to be a strength of our of our ilk. And I'm, you know, again, I'm one of them. So I can, I can at least say that that's been my experience. So, you know, where will we be? Where will our tribe be? Because we are tribal. I mean, listen to Brene Brown. She'll talk about this. And we are neurobiologically wired to seek tribe and community. We have to have it. So, and we do that by saying, who's like me? I mean, that's just what we do on a biological level. And being able to subvert that biology and go, okay, I have to figure out who's like me on a deeper level as opposed to just my background experience and skin color. It really has to be a much more values-based conversation is brand new. And that's why I mean, like the conversation 
is brand new and it is so exciting to be a part of, but man, is it uncomfortable. Yeah, it really is. It really, like I have had some feelings and not always good ones about myself, about myself. It occurred to me only recently. Oh my God. Like, I just remember one day looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, I don't like anything I'm seeing. I I don't like Mm. myself. I don't even love myself. And so I was like, why would that be? And, you know, you you just start, like, these sound like, I I feel ridiculous having this conversation because a lot of what I'm saying is just childish, right? But asking questions like, what is it that makes me less worthy of love than fucking Kim Kardashian, right? Or anybody, anybody. And I don't know how to answer that question. So I've been thinking a lot about it. And, you know, there's this whole, I know you have a very spiritual outlook. I spend a lot of time with Zen, right? Zen Buddhism is sort of my, where I've landed. And, um, there's a, there's a lot in Buddhism about how we are all part, you know, we're all interconnected and the, mm-hmm. the way that you treat yourself and the way that you view yep. yourself is how you view the world. And yet we like to cut women off and force them or force ourselves to objectify ourselves. No wonder the world is so effed up and no wonder we're so easy to control, right? Because you you aren't engaging as your full self, authentic and completely convinced of your value and your worth. And so how can you do that? How can you offer that to others? Now, I just, I feel like we, if we can get that, if we can own that idea of loving yourself isn't selfish, then that is where the world can be transformed. But it is such a difficult thing to do because so much of the way that I was indoctrinated to be a woman is about not loving myself and the idea that loving myself is actually sinful and selfish. Without question. That's it. I mean, we have um, a a huge crisis of self-harm in the form of limiting self-belief. And the trauma associated with that is absolutely not going to be overcome with insight. That's the first step. It has to be, there's action that has to come after the insight. And then there's the outcomes of new choices that are being made, which are going to be entirely disruptive to family and to self and to community and to workplace. And that's the journey that we're just now undertaking. But the reality of the first step is we are all self-harming by choosing to adopt a belief about being a woman that archives us as wife mother without independent identity that has truncated our voice that has disallowed us to have opinion or feeling especially negative feeling like anger disappointment sadness grief I mean, if you would talk to older women, some of them are spitting angry that they're now 80 years old and the conversations that are happening with their granddaughters, for example, are things that they would never be allowed to even think about, right? Opportunity, choice, those kinds of things. So I, yeah, I mean, this is a definite moment of reckoning and we'll see how it goes. (laughs) It's not, it's going to be a, it's going to be interesting. I think that even if you do get it, 
like even if you do understand this idea of having to love yourself and accept yourself for who you are, it's very easily manipulated and turned into a process of consumption. And that is, I mean, basically that's just abusive, (laughs) culturally abusive. There's no doubt. You've hit the nail on the head. We're talking about a revolution of a cultural story and it's pretty awe-inspiring to see it occurring, but to experience it, it certainly has its own qualities. I mean, I, I will say this, as somebody who's worked in social sector work for a long time, many of the social inequities that are finally coming to the consciousness of mainstream public are things that have been spoken about in social sector circles for a really long time. And so there's some part of it that is there's a relief that we're finally some of these issues that have been plaguing social work and societal work and cultural work, like social mobility and those types of things are finally being talked about in an open space. At the same time, parallel to that, because I'm an older white woman, my irrelevance in that conversation, regardless of the fact that I have been working on it for, you know, three decades it's happened simultaneous. So I have been doing this work and have seen how we have time and time again, continued to build systems that are based on systems of inequity that, that are about our origination. And we continue to kind of tell this story over and over again and have built systems accordingly. And so I have deep experience and knowledge and can speak to it. And, and I'm also a white person. So can sit in white rooms and have conversations with white people that feel like, we are talking about our shared experience. At the same time, my experience as a white person is somewhat irrelevant at the moment. And that is a really unique unique place to be in. You know, somebody who's done this work for so long and then all of a sudden to be like, you are completely irrelevant. It's like, oh, wow. Okay, now what do I do? Right. right. How do I, how do I navigate this moment? I don't think that you're irrelevant. I do think that I'm a believer Anyone who wants to cut somebody out of movement work or cut somebody out of being able to contribute toward the shared ideal, I feel is doing it because of this scarcity mentality. And Mm -hmm. I'm not one of these, you know, I am not this person that's like, you know, law of attraction. I, I just am not. But I also realized that, you know, I was raised very poor, like extremely poor. And I see how my poverty growing up affects in infinite ways the way that I engage, even when I have things now. I mean, I yeah, have you know, a family, sure. I have a home, I have money. I, I mean, I'm not rich, but I'm not for want. And there's a mentality there that says, I still have to be afraid every time I pull out a credit card, right? It's an baked into me that says I can't afford whatever I'm trying to buy and so I feel like that is what we're looking at when it comes to people trying to marginalize anyone if you have shared vision and shared goals now keep in mind you know the big caveat there are people that are absolutely more qualified to be leading just based on their intersectional identities but everybody who wants to see progress is valid and needs to be included and has something that they can contribute and so I just I feel like anyone who's like you're irrelevant is doing that out of a place of of scarcity like they're they're saying there's not enough they haven't seen enough opportunity and so they don't 
they just want to eliminate anyone who could possibly take away their opportunity to contribute. Yeah, I think that's true. I really do. And I think the bigger question is how do we then not feel irrelevant in those environments? So this piece of feeling irrelevant is quite new, to be completely frank, as this is a function of my privilege. I got to walk into spaces and feel as if there was some part of the experience that I could work toward and then earn. So this notion of and I hear you. I, and, the, and unfortunately, the, the pendulum kind of swung and then there was this sort of cleaver that came down. It was like, no, you, you, know, you, you can't be the person that's doing this work because you were an older white woman. Fortunately, I was in a place where I could step back and do other things that allowed for introspection, support, empathy, all of those things that we should be cultivating right now. But the bigger piece is how do we work with the personal feelings of irrelevance? Yes, there you go. That's it. Well, it's like what we were talking about before. Like, are Black women really angry? No, it's just that we have in our mind this, well, maybe some some of them are angry and they have a right to be angry. (laughs) Angry is a legitimate response. But like the... I'm talking about the way that we define behaviors and the status quo makes us feel like they're mad at us, right? That's our, our work is really, or a huge part of our work really is to deconstruct all of that in ourselves and figure out what does it actually mean to be relevant? What does it actually mean to be participating in a broader intersectional movement? Because if we cannot do that, and it's, you know, it is a process, it's very challenging, but that, that actually prevents progress as well. It's a fight with the ego. It really is. I was just about to say that you read my mind. I said relevance is really, you know, in my mind, as I'm thinking about this, the beauty of this period for me is the ability to do that work on the spiritual and the personal level that is really in direct battle with the ego. And so that's been super helpful. And the antithesis of this is this is folks that are trying to numb themselves through this process, which is, again, that's been a tough thing. There's been a lot of conversation about substance in my sessions that has definitely been kind of at the, is at, is at a, a crescendo. Yep. yep. I've noticed those conversations as well. I mean, that, that just breaks my heart because you know, I mean, I come from a long line of people that abused drugs and alcohol and I've seen how it's just like quicksand for your soul. And, and I think that that is a legitimate threat to, to progress so how can we support people and women specifically who are trying to overcome that impulse, whether or not it's an actual addiction at this point, to, to numb themselves? Because I think you're right. I, I think we numb ourselves even when it's not about substance. I think there's lots of For ways sure. that we numb ourselves. And some of that comes out as just self-loathing and being angry and ugly to other people. I see a lot of people who are struggling with ways to express the pain and the discomfort that they're feeling. And, mm-hmm. uh, and lots of people that are resorting to all kinds of ugly things that are just not, they're actually undermining the work. No doubt. No, there's, and I there's myself in that too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think consumption is not just about drugs, alcohol, sex. It's about digital media. It's about film content. It's about food. It's about, yeah, it's about ideology. 
you can consume ideology as well and therefore feel as if you have tribe because you're like, you know, reinforcing this mythology that you really want to be a part of because it feels or looks powerful in a moment. Yeah. I mean, this is a big theme, how to remain present in the muck as it arrives, especially for white women who have this issue with anger, stress, grief, and expressing negative emotions, sort of being living in the nice zone. And so it's a thing. The allowance for people to not be okay is, is not something we have a lot of fluency with. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. If we can't be mindful about our consumption all and all of it and really intentional about what, how we live and step into our days and lives and work and family and everything else, we will thwart our progress. This is we're, we are going to have to have deep conversations primarily with ourselves first. Well, the good news is I do think that there are a lot of people who have this kind of awareness. And I actually, I'm a big believer that the average person is, is a whole lot more aware. I mean, there's a lot of shit that people talk about people, right? Mm-hmm. People are stupid. People suck. I don't think that's true. I think the way that we manifest our collective is often really shitty but I think individually, there, there are a lot of people. And, I, and you don't have to be a goddamn brilliant person. You don't have to be an intellectual. You don't have to be an artist. You don't have to be anything. There are some of the most profoundly wise people I know are people that were very salt of the earth, very humble mm-hmm. people who don't have a claim to fame. And I think that a lot of us are, are stewing on things. And I think the thing that worries me the most is that we elevate our systems, we worship our systems to the point that we miss out on the extraordinary level of human potential in each and every individual. And I wish that we had better ways of coaxing all of that out and putting it to good use. Well said, me too. I mean, if we could get away from this indoctrination into, you know, the sort of factory that churns out obsessive, compulsive need for status and status quo achievement and those kinds of things, if we could really try to get at human potential with people, my gosh. I know. I know. I think about it all the time. Yeah, it is. All the time. I mean... And certainly, you know, with the crises as they were happening all over the planet in various forms, if this, if this opportunity doesn't present itself right now, then I don't know when it will. I am actually at heart an optimist. And I do think that there, you know, that whole arc of the universe bends towards justice mm-hmm. and progress and all of the beautiful things. I, I do think that that's true. And so I have that. I guess that's the closest thing I have to like hope in my life. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just, I... I had hope weaponized against me for so long and Mm. held over my head like this giant cosmic carrot that I'm kind of fucking over it. But I think that there is that, that I I do believe that people, we have the ability to evolve into better things and to recognize the extraordinary potential of humanity. And I I have to believe that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is our call back to self. So I feel like there's every bit of the opportunity to realize that right now. I really do. 
but yeah, but it's going to get messy here for a hot minute. That's all right. I'm a, I'm chaotic neutral. So I'm actually my element. (laughs) (laughs) Bring it on. Oh my gosh. I love it. All right. Well, Christine, this has been an amazing conversation. My God, it was so worth the wait. It's so sweet. I know this was really nice. It was really lovely to just mind melt with you for a little while. It's been great. I'm in awe of your reinvention and feels very, all of that potential that you just described feels very kind of resplendent in you right now. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Thank you. It was hard and I am still recovering (laughs) from the, (laughs) from the process, from the burn. Uh, I understand. (laughs) Thank you. It's been so lovely just to see you and, and to chat with you. Well, I will, I'll make sure that uh, when I share this podcast, I post, um, you know, links to all of your work so people can find you and follow you. And thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for your time and also just for the work you do and the way that you do it. It's making the world a better place or at least helping the world reinvent itself in better mm-hmm. ways. And I'm that kind of work is is sacred. Well, thank you. That, that makes me feel like I can continue to trudge through another day. So we'll do it. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.